0: Dr. Prakash Shah specializes in cultural diversity in law, religion in law, caste in law, immigration, refugee and nationality law, and comparative law. He has published widely and lectured internationally in these fields. Dr. Shah joined Queen Mary University of London in 2002, where he is now a reader in culture and law. His publications include Western Foundations of the Caste System, where he's a co-editor, and that was published in 2017, and Against Caste in British Law, a critical perspective on the caste discrimination provision in the Equality Act of 2010. That was published in 2015. Professor Shah closely follows the Research Center for Comparative Science of Cultures under the guidance of Professor S.N. Balagangadra. A program dedicated to unmasking entrenched Euro-colonial narratives about India, which the participating researchers argue are more a memorialization of how Europeans and Christians experienced other cultures. This center is developing alternative theories by giving a new access to the Indian traditions and by making their insights available for the development of new theories in the social sciences. Welcome, Professor Shah. How are you? Thank
1: you. Thank you very much. I'm fine. How how are you? (laughs) Great. Well,
0: you know, we've been in conversation for, I think now... Over a year, we're, or we're hitting at least the year mark. I had right. reached out to you uh, when headlines hit the news. He made the news here uh, when the state of California filed a uh, case against um, Cisco Systems over alleged caste-based discrimination. So that's going to be the topic of our conversation, um, largely. But before we get into that, um, I'd love to have you share a little bit about your background. You're a Shah. I'm formally a Shah So I'm going to assume Gujarati descent, uh, but where did you grow up and what drew you to the study of law?
1: All right. So I grew up in uh, Mombasa, (coughs) uh, Kenya. Actually, I was born in Mombasa, Kenya. Sorry. Uh, And I spent some of my childhood there. But uh, before uh, with my family, I moved to the UK. We lived uh, for the most part in Nairobi. So I'm I'm uh, I'm, I've always been part of the Indian diaspora. What drew
0: you to law? So you've done quite a lot of work on race, refugees and migration. Um, Was there something that motivated a focus there as opposed to, say, you know, like what most people do going to law school is they go to become a lawyer an advocate? Uh, What was the motivation? To pursue these areas, and what's the thrust of your research been in these areas?
1: Right, um, I think the the law question is easy to answer. My my dad was a lawyer, <laughs> actually b- back in the nineteen fifties, he came to the UK to study law at the bar, mm. um, and uh, so he spent a number of years here, and then he returned to uh, establish his legal practice in Kenya. So. Uh, you know, I, I suppose I sort of just grew up sub taking in, in, uh, this kind of subliminal messages about how important law is and so on. And of course, in the background, you always had this kind of consciousness that, you know, the, 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 the leaders that we once thought were great, the, the great Indian leaders, you know, like Gandhi and Nehru and all these, uh, people, uh, had also, uh, had a legal background. So you, you always thought, well, this is sort of a natural thing to, to pursue, um, but when it comes to, uh, how I ended up doing, uh, research, I suppose, uh, that is partly, uh, explainable because, uh, quite early on in my undergraduate, uh, years, I, uh, decided that I wasn't going to practice law. Actually, mm-hmm. once I started to study law and especially towards the end of my undergraduate years, I, I got the feeling that the bar in particular, the English bar in particular is a very conservative arena. I don't think it's any longer that, right. Perhaps it was already developing out of its kind of, uh, you know, uh, uh, at least the image that I had of its very frozen nature at some, sometime in the past, you know, being a very sort of uh, English gentlemanly club or something like that. It's so, awesome kind of certainly thing. not. like Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's certainly not like that today. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in fact, um, you might say that it's, it's one of the professions which is desperately trying to assert it's, it's uh, progressive credentials, if you, like, you know, as, as many professions are, uh, are doing uh, in the UK. Uh, but anyway, th- this was the idea that I, I had at the time and I, I felt uh, it, to be quite an off-putting career choice. Um, so I sort of remained in academia by default. And um, I suppose the clinching factor was the fact that I, I managed to get a scholarship to study for my doctorate. Um and once you've done your doctorate, you're pretty much committed to becoming an academic because otherwise you have to ask yourself the question, How? why did I spend four or five years just writing this big tome? Right. And uh, <laughs> you know, uh, what has what it all been for? And it's hardly going to be recognized in the outside world. Well, that's not completely true, but uh, basically you're kind of committed. And of course, I enjoyed the process of research. Besides working on my doctorate, I, I tended to research on many other things uh, in relation to migration law. And so my own doctorate was on migration law on the, on how refugee law developed in the United Kingdom, uh, over a fairly long historical period. Uh, but meanwhile, I also started teaching, uh, modules on, uh, ethnic minorities and law, uh, as, as, as that module used to be called, uh, I now call it cultural diversity and law. Uh, but that, that module was pioneered at the school for Oriental and African studies where I, uh, did my doctorate <clears throat> by a professor now retired professor, uh, Werner Mensky, who also happens to be, uh, one of the, you might say world experts in the, uh, study of South Asian laws, uh, including Indian law, hmm. um, and including Hindu law as well. And, uh, although I never studied, uh, Indian law and Hindu law formally, mm-hmm. I think by osmosis, I learned a lot from, uh, his writing. Oh. And that's one of the things I suppose that, sort of awakened in me the uh sort of orientation or the d- desire to know more about India and Indian cultural traditions and so on, Uh, you know, because before that, I suppose it's always a kind of taken for granted aspect of your heritage, but it wasn't really uh an area that I would have ever have considered to be a strong part of my research mm-hmm. uh focus. But uh, I think uh, once I met Professor Minsky, uh, it, it sort of looked more and more real. So, how I developed my interest in migration law from that point was also to extend it to uh, the study of ethnic minorities and law. And, you know, as I call it nowadays, cultural diversity and law. So how different migrant migrant populations uh, lead to challenges. or what, in Britain, certainly we could be referred to as multiculturalism, I suppose you do in the United States as well um, and the way in which laws are <clears throat> are shaped around ideas of multiculturalism and the kind of tensions that arise as a result uh, in these Uh, anglophonic plural societies that that became a kind of core part of my research focus besides migration the study of migration law and then slowly i extended into comparative law and so on largely under the influence of uh, uh, professor Mensky. so i you know it, it was it was a very unusual menu of research and teaching for a law school
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, and a law student of, of that time, you know, today you'll see a lot of people, you know, specializing even in Britain on issues like race and law, uh, and religion and law. Uh, but in those days it was a very, very, um, almost like an arcane, uh, focus area. Um, mm-hmm. so I'm glad to have come, come into it much earlier than, than other people. But then I also, uh, look around and see how, you know, basic mistakes are being repeated all around. Right, Um, right. And of course, I've I've revised my own perspective several times, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, I used to be a real fan of uh, the framework of legal pluralism, Uh, but today I've become one of the critics of legal pluralism. So, you know, as you go on and you develop new ideas and, you know, confront other people's ideas and so on, of course, it's, it's a constantly changing kind of thing. Uh, I'm, I'm almost embarrassed to read some of the stuff that I wrote in the past.
0: <laughs> well, <laughs> in spite of, I think sometimes on social media, um, us getting, the feeling that people are not allowed to evolve, that we should be held responsible for things that we may have said 20 years ago, 30 years ago. Uh, I am still a believer in human evolution <laughs> and the evolution of thought, certainly. I mean, that happens day to day. Uh, but, uh, you know, some, sometimes we get the feeling that um, that does not that should not happen or that we should be held accountable for past ideas. Two things that you um said just reminded me that, you know, back when I was in law school, um, there was kind of a it was, it was nothing to be taken seriously, but they said the A students are the ones who end up becoming Supreme court justices. The B students are the law professors and the C students are the lawyers, um, the ones who are, you know, in the field, in the trenches, uh, because we have C's because we were very social. (laughs) And so much of the practice of law is about networking and, you know, being able to convince others and, and things like that. But another thing that you, um, brought up just in terms of kind of your overall area of study, I had taken one class. Um, it was a, uh, I can't remember what they used to call it back then. It might have been a seminar course. And it was on race, religion, and law, um, or race, religion, and civil rights. I can't remember exactly the name of it. But at the end of that, we were supposed to write a thesis paper. And I wrote one that came out of my own experience. And I know we're going to talk a lot about race and other sociological categories, but it came from an experience that I had in high school with my guidance counselor. When I was looking to apply for colleges, they have these little boxes. And I know we're going to talk about the census as well. And I immediately thought, well, I'm Indian origin. I should mark Asian And she stopped me from doing that. She said, well, you're not Asian. And, you know, in her mind, she was maybe thinking about facial, you know, features that have been associated with Asian as a racial category or an ethnic category and or countries of origin and thinking more about the Near East and the Far East as opposed to South Asia. And I remember thinking, well, if I'm not Asian, what am I? And so that led me to write a paper exploring how people of Indian origin were seen through the legal construct. And there were fascinating Supreme Court cases going back. There's a case uh, that delved into the questions of identity. And it was a case by a, the plaintiff or the petitioner was a man named Pagatind. And the whole question was around what was his race and whether he was eligible for Citizenship. So just interesting that these are questions that have been around for so long. Um, And so that kind of brings me into kind of the thrust of what I hope will be our conversation um, for the remainder of our time. You know, you and I, as I mentioned before, met in connection with the state of California's filing a case against Cisco Systems. And I had read a few pieces um, here and there about the book you had co-edited, The Western Foundation's of The Cast System, which approaches the contentious and complicated topic from multiple angles. So caste seems like quite the departure from race and immigration. Maybe not. But how did that happen?
1: Uh, Okay. So there are two currents, I suppose that came, came together. Um, The first thing was that by, by 2013, which I, which is when I started to, you know, my antenna started to get alerted to this issue of cost and cost and law being, being raised in the UK. By that time, I was familiarizing myself with some of the output of the research program of uh, S.N. Balagangadhara, right, Uh, in in Belgium, the research program on the comparative science of cultures. Um, And so he had already built up, uh, you know, uh, a a number of scholars around that research program, and they were doing a very, very serious study of comparative study of Europe and India. And part of the focus already of that program uh, was on caste. Um, it was, you know, they had already started to address questions of caste um, and how conceptions of caste developed in the encounter between, between Europe and India. Uh, so that, that's one thing. And, and so of course, one of the things I I realized is that there, there is more to the problem of caste than meets the eye. And this research program is trying to give us a key to opening up that, that problem in a very interesting way that's one thing. So the, the other thing is, uh, I suppose something I mentioned already, which is the fact that the, uh, the caste law issue emerged in the UK, mm-hmm. uh, because and this is when I wasn't around actually. I mean, I, I was doing some other, you know, my own, my own stuff, my own research, pursuing my own research interests and so on. Uh, But, and unbeknown to me, there was already some agitation by activists who were pursuing the agenda that caste must be made part of the discrimination law in the UK. Uh, And they had already managed to do that by 2010, actually. Mm -hmm. Um, The only uh, problem they faced was that there was a uh skeptical enough government which accepted that w- they would put or they would insert the word caste into the anti-discrimination law, but they wouldn't enact it in the sense that they wouldn't implement the the caste provision. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, that, and that already happened in, in 2010. Uh, but they kept the power to do so should the research demonstrate that there was a necessity of doing, you know, of implementing that that provision. By 2013, which is when I started to get really interested in in this issue, there was an amendment led by the anti-caste activists and uh, you know some members of the legislature, including uh, a churchman uh, who is, was in the House of Lords, uh, Lord Harris, uh, his former former Ang- Anglican bishop, and they managed to successfully pass an, an amendment to the effect that. Uh, the government is now obliged to implement the provision on cost. Previously it had the power, i.e. the discretion to do that, right? Uh, but the 2013 amendment meant that the government was obliged to implement that provision as part of the anti-discrimination law and thereby making making it an aspect of race, mm-hmm. right? So actually they, very interesting, and this may be a discussion we can have is also they connected race to caste or caste to race. Um, so this is what, when, when the alarm bells went right, uh, if not just me, but many people within the community were somewhat alarmed, you know, leaders of different community organizations and so on. Um, but if you examine the dominant academic response to these moves, particularly in 2010 and 2013, you find that the thrust of the academic response was really to favor the law. Mm-hmm. Uh, all the way, not just the 2010 version, but even the 2013 version, uh, because they were desperately, in, uh, 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 maybe yeah, desperate, desperate is probably a good word. Um, they were des- desperate to have this recognition within the anti-discrimination law. Certainly those, those academics who were at the same time working with the anti-caste activists, right? Um and there, were, there, was hardly, there was hardly any academic, certainly no working academic like me, who took the opposite position and said, "Look, this is not right. This doesn't seem right, right? Uh, that there is some other kind of agenda here that the, you know there are real doubts about the conception of caste and caste discrimination that this group of people are uh, trying to have made as part of the, the legal machinery of, of Britain. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so those two things came, came together, you know, my, my sort of, um, b- some basic acquaintance with the uh, research program of the comparative science of cultures and the fact that this caste law thing became a real prospect in Britain, right. Right? um, I I hope that answers actually at least it does.
0: It does. It gives, question, us, yeah. it gives us a good uh, framework of how these, okay. Kind of something. What's happening in your backyard? Yes, happens to kind of come in line with, or or begins overlapping with. Yeah.
1: May, may I just say one more thing? Sorry to yes. interrupt, but the the uh, see at that point in twenty thirteen, I had virtually no idea about caste as such, right? I mean, uh, of course, I was familiar with some of the, 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 the output of this research program that I've, I've referred to, but, uh, you know, how cost uh, figured in Indian law, for example, uh, where else it, would, it was figuring in, in, in any other legal system? You know, uh, what about the countries which neighbor India, for example, like Nepal, Pakistan, Bangladesh, and so on? Uh, do they have laws on caste or caste discrimination or some other type of law on caste? You know, um, so that was the point when my study of caste accelerated. In fact, more than I, more than I could handle. You yeah. know, because there was there was once you begin to dig into this area, and particularly Indian law is so complicated. Mm -hmm. And there are so many different laws on caste. Um, There is no law on caste discrimination as such, but there are laws on caste atrocities. Uh, There are reservations laws. There are even weird laws like uh, when one marries across caste lines. So if, let's say, a non-SC, so a scheduled caste person, marries a scheduled caste person, uh, they're entitled to get some money from the state. And so many different states in India have this kind of law. Hmm. Right. Um, so, and, you know, of course, the background is that, you, you know, this thing about breaking caste, I suppose, right? That that it was, it went into the Indian policy mind at some point during the colonial period that uh, the caste system needed to be broken. And this was, you know, paying people to marry outside the, outside one's caste is how, one of the ways you can achieve that. So... Uh, you know, slowly all all the, all these things, I became acquainted with all these things and I, the more I researched and so on. And one of the things I realized is that, uh, I mean, this gets into further sort of deeper territory is that, but if you, if you accept one of the basic claims of the research program in Belgium, first of all, that there is no caste system, Mm -hmm. which is the widely held view about India and Hinduism in particular. And, the conception of the caste system that we've all, so in some way, think we're acquainted with, right, or, or we think we have knowledge of,
0: the pyramid uh, with the Brahmins on top. Yeah, I mean, exactly. It, it that, that's a very it, yeah. It starts with our textbooks in sixth grade here in the United
1: States. Right. Right. Okay. Uh, That that conception of the caste system is something that the Brits and other Europeans developed.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Right. Because that is how they saw India. It was in their experience of India that they developed this. And if you look at most of the existing laws in a country like India, I realized that actually there's some kind of connection between those laws and what was developed during the encounter between uh, Europe and India by the Europeans, Mm -hmm. right? So the story we have, the caste system, this triangular uh, pyramidal thing. Yes. (laughs) Uh, And all kinds of other assumptions about caste, you know, Brahmins as priests, uh, you know, the Hindus as idolatrous people and followers of a false religion, and how these Brahmins keep everybody under the sway of a false religion, you know, uh, and oppress them under under the system that they've erected, which is the caste system. All of those kinds of ideas, they're not so much in the forefront today because some of the more Christian doctrinal conceptions have been. Occluded. Uh, so we have a kind of secularized idea of the caste system, but actually it can be tracked completely, you know, really can be tracked uh, almost one-to-one to the accounts, the, the kind of, dog, you know, Christian dogmatic accounts which were provided mm-hmm. during the colonial period and, and, and solidified and crystallized and, and institutionalized within the colonial Indian legal system. So what the... Post independence people have done in India is really to build on those foundations,
2: mm-hmm.
1: right? And and they're they're all conceptual ideas about what caste is, what the caste system is, the fact that they they, they they need to break it or lift people outside of it or help people who are oppressed and so on and so forth. Uh, they all derive from these 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 uh, European ideas. Now, th- this is so 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 that th- this is. It. How you, you know what, the, what once you once you go deeper into this thing, you realize that oh my god, this is all erected on a false foundation, if you like. Mm-hmm. Right? A false foundation has been given to Indian culture, and a huge a huge amount of activity has been done, right? Yeah. Not just in legal terms, but in terms of policies, in terms of
0: narratives, uh, conceptions, <inaudible>
1: narratives, exactly, right? Uh, the way in which we look at Indian history, uh. All kinds of, obviously, Indian religion, uh, you know, more or less everything, right? Questions of social justice uh, and and, and so on and so forth. So uh, it's a huge issue, right? Uh, And I'll just go back to one of the things I was saying earlier. You see, if you confront this in Britain, uh, you're not going to get a huge audience, right? My audience at the time, let's say from 2013 onwards, was uh, the Indian Community Organization people. Right. right. Those, those are the guys who are the most receptive to thinking with me about how this thing has happened. Right. Mm-hmm. And what we were getting in the United Kingdom were, were really the after effects, right? The, the, the kind of, you know, uh, some kind of uh, outflow from what had already been developed in India, you know, as fundamental ideas about their culture and society. Mm -hmm. right so once it came into the diaspora a lot of the building blocks were already there and it's very difficult to challenge that you know we're talking about something like two to three hundred years of right exactly work which has gone into founding these ideas right developing these ideas and building them to the extent that many indians have also internalized them that is how they genuinely think their society is functioning Mm -hmm. right so there's a kind of mismatch between their experience of what's going on in their relation with fellow Indians uh, and uh, the kind of framework they have to talk about.
0: It. Right. I, it, it's funny that you say that because, you know, right now in the United States, um, anti-racism um, it has become uh, a, a pillar um, to many of the social justice trends. And what, Oftentimes boggles my mind, especially after having done a deep dive. Um, after reading your book, and then following the footnotes and reading even more and even more, I can see where uh, it's it's just a avalanche of information that needs to be gone through, and we're almost approaching it with a, a spoon <laughs> instead of a shovel yes. in terms yes. of unpacking. Uh, but to see South Asian activists. Perpetuating things like the Aryan invasion theory uh, to call out the community is is one of these kind of manifestations of this entrenched narrative, and and I think that um, Professor Malagangazara calls it uh, colonial consciousness or colonial
1: right, right right right
0: that we we see that day in and day out that yeah. it's become so entrenched, so much a part of our not just understanding of indian society but in many ways our understanding of ourselves mm. and so that everything that we see it's like someone placed a certain tinted lens on our eyes and we don't know that they're there and yeah. so everything that we see is is through that lens so and in some sense perhaps you having grown up in the diaspora all of us have had those lenses on so what was the most surprising thing you learned as you were exploring uh the work of the research group or just in those early days i mean obviously now and maybe this is a hard question to even go back that far but what was that first thing that kind of triggered like oh my goodness maybe what i've thought all along is not true and there's right, more to right,
1: right. it. Um, well, actually, actually I, I wouldn't even say that. I, I, I think when I was entering this issue of the, you know, caste and caste system, uh, probably m- my attitude can be characterized as probably just some, somewhat naive, you mm-hmm. know, and I, I had a sort of very weak or faint acquaintance that there is such, thing, such a thing as caste and uh, I, I, myself, was not really brought up in an environment where you had to grow up to be ashamed of something called caste, mm-hmm. um, and and one of the thing, interesting things I I began to realize is that once I read the the material that Malagangathar's research program was producing, if I try to talk about it to even to fellow Indians or people of Indian origin, particularly those people who are from India,
2: have
1: mm-hmm. more direct connection with India. Uh, you would get a lot of pushback, mm. right? Because their experience, or let, let's yeah, let's let's say experience in a loose way, their experience or their way of talking about their experience uh, of being an Indian was actually carried with it this baggage of having to be ashamed of being an Indian. Mm-hmm. because they always thought that they lived in a kind of oppressive society which you know everybody was obliged to oppress everybody else right. And, you know uh, the, the, the 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 sooner they denied that part certainly that part of their uh heritage uh the the more moral they they could present themselves as being mm-hmm. I never had that baggage you know i yeah. never and, and that could that is, so there's two things there maybe be like oh at least two uh one thing is that probably it helped being part of the uh, uh, diaspora in East Africa. Mm -hmm. Because we didn't grow up with the same pressure of the way in which Indian heritage or this this European version of India was pushed down our throats. We had actually no exposure to the study of India. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so we had nothing to be embarrassed about. But there's another sting to that, which I'll come come to later on, right which which people like yourselves in the United States are experiencing today. The Indians in East Africa did experience that sting, but in a different way. Hmm. Uh, the other thing is that it made me more receptive to the kind of material that was being produced in the research program of S.M. Bala Mangadara. Mm-hmm. So I think part, you know, those kind of things coming together meant that I I could be in a kind of the kind of position to start to address what was going on in the United Kingdom at the time, right? Uh, and start to challenge the dominant kind of thing that was coming through in terms of the anti-colonial activists, their academics, reporters, and so on. Not without it's it's its own type of blowback, right? So there's the, obviously I'm not, I'm not the favorite person when it comes to the study of India or the Indian diaspora among my fellow academics, right? Right. Uh, we also tried to make representations to our uh, Equality and Human Rights Commission, who, which were completely backing the caste law, right? Just like your California right. Department for Fair Employment and Housing, right? Our Equalities Commission was really, really for the caste law, even before details of the nature of the caste law were released, before any research was officially commissioned. They were, they were part of it, right? Right. Uh, so that's interesting. Uh we tried to adge- address the government equalities office, which comes under the 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 relevant ministry, right? Um uh, in the home office. Uh so we 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 tried tried a lot to make different kinds of representations and trying to point out to policymakers, government officials, legislators and so on that what what you guys are doing is not the right thing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, now, unfortunately, well, fortunately, unfortunately, the, the kind of response that the Indian community here represented, like sort of put forward or was seen as putting forward is that when we made these kind of representations, one of two things happened. These were seen as representations of Hindus, right? Which is where you get into a certain problematic territory, and you can understand why that would be. You see, we're we all so Laura, maybe in the United States as well, but also in Britain, you're living under a kind of multiculturalist framework which says, okay, different communities have a say in the way in which their affairs are run. Mm-hmm. They can make representations to the government. Actually, more often than not, they receive representations from government and then transmit them to the population that they are allocated, if you like, right? right or, or right. They speak on behalf of. And so because this got very rapidly conceptualized as a Hindu issue, mm-hmm. the kind of stuff that we were saying also got kind of trapped into that mold, right? So this was seen as a response. It wasn't seen as an objective, scientific. Right. Response to a massive problem that the legislators and you know parliamentarians, policymakers and so on, they were creating for themselves. Mm-hmm. It was seen as a Hindu issue and our representations were seen as kind of niche ones, which are coming from only a particular segment of the community. Right. And in a way you could say, well, we had no choice, right? Like they did, because the framework doesn't allow you to do that. If you look around, you know, if you look sideways to the Muslim community, right? Muslims didn't want to know anything about the caste law, right? Let alone support the Hindu organizations in what what they were trying to say, right? So you you get a kind of blank response. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: The Sikhs were quite worried, okay, right? Because actually, when you look at the case studies that the first officially commissioned study uh, came out, in in that study, uh, most of the cases were to do with Sikhs. Mm. Right. And actually, that's more an index of the fact that the survey was done uh, very much, very much according to the demands of the anti-caste activists. And among the anti-caste activist organizations were these, you know, uh, some of these Sikh Sikh bodies, which -hmm. which are not regarded as part of the Khalsa, but, you know, uh, lower caste Sikh Uh, punts Mm -hmm. and in some way or another, they got led to covering these, these seat, you know, kind of a snowballing effect. Oh, we know somebody who can tell you a story about their experience of caste discrimination and so on. So it kind of went from there snowballed. Uh, But obviously that meant that the study was extremely limited, Mm -hmm. right? It doesn't give you a representative picture of the, let's say so-called South Asian population in, in the UK. Right. What it does is to say, oh, here are a few anti-caste activists. Their friends are also anti-caste, in the anti-caste activist frame of mind. <laughs> and they'll tell you any kind of story you want to hear about caste discrimination, right? Whether or not you can, they can prove it or establish it or whether you can check it out, which of course the, the people who are doing the study couldn't, right? If I say to you, yes, you know, I was once sitting in a restaurant and the waiter realized that I was a low-caste person and, you know, he he talked to me in this particular way, there's no way of verifying that. It could be just my perception or it could be I was having a bad day. He was having a bad day. We don't know. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, But those kinds of allegations were taken as empirical proof that something was there, something, there was a problem in the South Asian community. And many people took that first study, which came out in 2010, uh, as uh, testifying to the problem of caste discrimination in Britain. Even though the study itself says that we can't say what kind of problem or how much of a problem there is in Britain. Right. Because we, we, would, ra- we would recommend actually a proper research program be carried out in order to establish what kind of problem of caste discrimination and its extent exists in Britain.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Right. So you can see how that kind of study can be used and abused, right? Because it, right. there's something in it for everybody. And of course, the pro-legislation parliamentarians took it and, and you know, whipped it up and said, look, this is conclusive proof that there is caste discrimination. And, you know, you've got a government in position, uh, in, in power. In fact, successive governments is not just one government, none of whom are really conscious of the deep background of this problem, right? The way in which conceptions of caste and caste system developed, Uh, the way in which they affected the study or, you know, understanding of what India is as a culture, uh, how that is actually coming to play in Britain because of the tradition, the, 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 you know, fashionable trend of uh, caste, anti-caste activism. None of that would have been really seriously appreciated. You know, basically the legislators or the, even the members of the government are simply afraid like, Oh, there's caste discrimination problem in UK. We've got to respond. Right. That they, so their, their response is at a very, very superficial level.
0: Right. There's right? a presumption of a problem. Yes. A presumption that it's prolific or yes. extremely widespread, and a presumption that existing law cannot address it. Yeah. Uh, and that, because it, it just and and we're seeing similar trends here too, right? The California Department of Education and Fair Housing. That's that's separate, and I think that setting aside the the inherent problems with the way in which the state has filed its complaint and trying to fit cast into the the existing categories. Um, I think there are existing categories through which you could uh, seek justice or, or seek reparation in in a situation of discrimination provided that the evidence and the facts and all of that is is looked at um, very carefully by a court. But you see the state trying to conflate caste with religion, first and foremost, uh, which under the United States Constitution, the state cannot define religious doctrine. And essentially what the state has done is to say that uh, caste is essentially legally mandated under Hindu social and religious customs and uh, and then they've tried to equate it with color. Uh, they have tried to equate it with race, and all of those. I think that your work has shown have some fundamental definitional issues that go back to how what is what is even caste and what is the caste system. Uh, I think that you know we certainly have said that the ancestry or ethnic origin are probably the most logical categories because of their kind of nebulous outlines in terms of what is considered, uh, what are, what are those categories exactly? Um, what do they entail that there's their scope for seeking justice under those categories? So, I'm going to get to a question somewhere. here. <laughs> uh, sure, sure. You know, there. so you have this law being presented uh, here. We have, in some sense, things that are happening in parallel. The state of California has filed the California case, but we don't have an outcome yet. It's been delayed. First, it was filed in federal court. Then it was pulled out. But there's been a huge media blitz as if it's going to happen overnight. Now it's in state court. And I believe the date is September. HAF has filed a third party motion based on these constitutional challenges that I've raised. One is the First Amendment issue with um, the, the state overstepping in terms of trying to define religious doctrine. But second, um, are some due process and equal protection issues in terms of not really having a definition of caste. And so there's that in Santa Clara County, as well as the Cal State system. There are proposals that are being considered in uh, adding caste as a particular uh, protected category. So similar to the Equality Act, adding it in the absence of, one, knowing whether existing law provides uh, remedy, two, in the absence of any evidence of it being widespread. So were there any precursors? I believe there were cases in the UK. Did those come before the Equality Act or after? Are you in that same sort of procedural morass where things are just happening in the absence of evidence, in the absence of actually exploring what protections are already provided by law. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Yes. Um, okay. So in, uh, you know, sorry, I, I said earlier that the Equality Act, which you also mentioned, right, uh, that was, there, were, there were two major events with that in 2010 and 2013. So in 2013, you have this situation where the government is obliged to implement that law. hmm So funnily enough, and of course I'm not one for conspiracy theories, but oddly enough Mm -hmm. in 2014, 2015, you've got this new case coming up through the uh, employment tribunal Mm
2: -hmm.
1: where this woman of Indian origin who is Christian and she claims to be a Christian tribal
2: Mm
1: -hmm. uh, was employed by a couple who were from Delhi Indian origin couple who, who were in, in Britain. Uh, and so immediately she receives her indefinite leave to remain, which is kind of subtle status, you know, immigration status in the UK.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: She brings an action for cost discrimination. Actually, her initial action isn't even for cost, cost discrimination. I think it's, it was to do with back pay and so on.
2: Hmm. Uh,
1: and it's at a later point in the proceedings that somebody suggests that caste discrimination should be made an issue in the case. Hmm. And so it's that part of the question, the legal question, whether or not caste is already part of the equality act. That is what went up the legal system, if you like from the employment tribunal to the employment appeal tribunal, which is in the British system, that's at the level of the high court and then back down to the industry, uh, the employment tribunal. And there there was more or less a consensus among the judges uh, that uh, caste can be read into the existing provision of race in the Equality Act because that provision already extends to ethnicity. And ethnicity has been interpreted as extending to dissent. And therefore, there is there is an argument to say that uh, uh, why shouldn't it cover cost? Right? Mm-hmm. There's no reason why it shouldn't cover cost. In fact, that's virtually how the, how the judges put it. And the formulation is very interesting. They say there is no reason why it shouldn't. Not that there is a reason why it should. <laughs> There's no reason why it shouldn't. So, uh, so I, I mean, I'm sure the logicians would have a have a brilliant time trying <laughs> to, try to <laughs> figure out what you know the kind of significance of that kind of formulation. Uh, but this is the kind of slippage that you saw in the way in which the problem was formulated. Nevertheless, the judges were basically more or less unanimous in saying that yes, caste is a, is is part of the uh, is an existing part of the. Uh, uh, corpus of anti discrimination already right now. What that does for, as far as the government of the day was concerned, is that it, in a way it's a it's a it's a get out clause, mm-hmm. right? Because they didn't have to implement the legislation if the judges okay. are saying that it's already part of the law, it's already covered, which is right. It, it, which is something that could happen in California. I'm not sure. That's what we're hoping for, <laughs> right? Let's see. What, yeah. Uh, then the uh, the the need for legislation becomes less obvious. And this is what the government then tried to engineer in a, a, uh, it's not an inquiry. What would they call it? A consultation, Mm
2: -hmm.
1: right? So uh, the government put out a consultation in 2017, asking the question, what do you prefer? Do you prefer that caste should be made uh, part of ethnicity Mm -hmm. under the existing case law, or do you think we should implement the provision uh, uh, on caste in the legislation? Now, this is where they engineered the, 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 uh, the responses, right? I, I mean, they we're sort of pretty much convinced that there was an engineering going on, uh, because you've got to see our, our position, or at least the group that I was aligned with in in Britain was saying that you, you should reject both options, hmm. right? That we don't, we don't want either.
2: hmm
1: because the very fact that you're trying to rule legally on matters of cost means that you're going to go wrong, right? Mm-hmm. It's going to create some kind of dysfunction, some kind of injustice because you guys simply don't know what cost is. <laughs> Nobody knows what cost is, right? right ultimately. Uh, of course, there is this deep background, right? But even that deep background is, is completely erroneous, right? So you can only do that by referring to that deep background and realize that there's nothing there. It's empty. Mm-hmm. It's an empty set, if you like, right? So. That's where you have huge problems. Hmm. Uh, and so, that, in the, well, I, I suppose I'm trying to explain our position uh, as it was at that time. Now, you, the particularly the Hindu groups, but also the Sikh group, the Sikh contingent, and some of the others took the position that, even the Jains actually, yeah, some of the leading Jain organization, took the position that, no, we should go for the uh, case law option.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Right? Uh, and it was, and, and this is where, you know, my earlier point about how the government actually suggests to community organizations, the leaderships of these organizations, which way they should move, how they should do something. Right. right? So I think the, within government circles, it was already decided that, yeah, actually, you know, if we can get the case law to be backed, mm-hmm. then we're, we've got to get out clause, right? We don't need to do anything and things can just go on as normal and we can get rid of the caste provision in the Equality Act, because that's what seems to be creating so many problems with our our communities and and also potentially with our voter base. So that's what they engineered. And a lot of the Hindu organizations in particular, and Sikh organizations, took that as a lead. And so if you look at the consultation responses, you can also more or less map them, right? Uh, According to the group that was you know, uh, engineering the responses, if you like. And they managed to get approval for the case law in the consultation, right? Mm-hmm. And this was a numbers breakdown. They, You know, the government said, oh, look, there's so many people in favor of the case law, so we're going to go with that. There's a minority who don't seem to want anything, but that's not realistic. And then there's other people who only want the legislation, right? Uh, which were the anti-caste activists and, and you know, that, that group, the church people and and so on. So, uh, this is how things panned out. So the, what, what the situation at the moment is that the caste provision is still in the statute book, but not implemented. It's actually due to be removed at some point. So we're led to believe the case law is there as the leading kind of British response to the problem of caste discrimination. Uh, and you might say, well, there's, there's not a big difference there because, it's all happens under the Equality Act anyway, right? Whether you have a specific provision or whether you go under the case law, which interprets the word ethnicity or something like that. So that's where we are at the moment. Our dominant response is really based on case law. Hmm.
0: Let me ask you this though, uh, under, and I don't know if, if the, I don't know how the laws are set up in the UK in terms of, uh, basic fundamental rights. But in the United States, we have this concept of equal protection where, and you can see that these non-discrimination laws and policies are an extension of that in that the protected categories are facially neutral, universal in some sense that race could be anyone. It could be someone who's African. It could be someone who's Chinese. It could be you know anything. Ancestry, same thing. Ethnic origin, same thing. Gender, sexual orientation, age, you name it. These are all broad, universally applicable terms that could really be applied to any human regardless of where they're from. Uh, but caste is so singularly associated with India and then specifically with Hindus. So how, and that's the argument we're making in terms of existing law as well as the specific problems with caste as a category denying equal protection because here in the United States, we're a micro minority. We're 1% of the entire population. So without any validated proof of this problem being so widespread, You have uh, governing bodies or policymakers considering adding a category that would single out and target 1% of the population. Um, Is there any sort of conception like that in the UK so that even if you know the 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 positive thing to me about case law is that each case is going to be you know set aside the definitional terms but each case is going to be treated on its individual merits they're going to look at the different actions and statements of the individuals involved and hopefully come to some sort of uh findings on whether uh discrimination was occurring on descent ancestor whatever we call it but in the case of adding it into the law itself, is that a concern if it went that direction?
1: Um, In a way, yes. And I think the idea was expressed that this is going to uh, single out particular groups Mm -hmm. as target groups. Um, And you you know, you've got to look, if you look at the ramifications of the having such a provision, um, you can, you can say, well, you know, as an employer, Right. Mm-hmm. I've got to be conscious, especially of my employees of a South Asian background, exactly. especially these Hindus. Right. Mm-hmm. Because we all know that, you know, so, so what you're doing is introducing a kind of presumption of discriminatory behavior mm-hmm. from the word go. Right. Uh, so it wasn't just the fact that, you know, here's a small group which can be marked out because of its characteristics and so on. But it's also, I mean, what concerned us in particular was the presumptive nature of the idea of caste discrimination in the sense that you you have presumptive discriminators, right? Not only that, uh, but that certain groups are presumptive, you know, that you can, you can, you know, because anti-discrimination, I'm not sure exactly how it works in California or the U S like the civil rights legislation and so on. But in Britain, you know, you have this, you have a particular legal provision in the Equality Act, which allows you to shift the burden of proof. Hmm. So if you can say that there are certain facts which have been presented by the plaintiff the 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 onus of disproving them or you know and disproving the existence of discrimination shifts to the defendant right so in this case maybe the employer or whoever uh, i mean i'm not saying that that's going to be the necessary effect of the cost uh, case law here so I'm, I'm not saying that but it, it it is it is working there somewhere in the psychology right because of the dominant stereotypes which are held about, particularly about Hindus and Hinduism,
2: mm-hmm.
1: right? Um, and, you know, you uh, actually going, going, talking about the deep background, you know, one of the things I saw very interesting, particularly in the missionary literature, mm-hmm. you know, there's been this, there, there was always this dispute about uh, people retaining their caste after conversion. And there were some missionaries who were really upset about that. In the 19th century, they, they were really like, oh, these guys, you know, they, they, we have to really be caste out of them somehow, right? Uh, and look at how they are bringing caste into the church and, and so on. Whereas there there, were, uh, there was another set of opinion with, among the missionaries who used to say, no, you know, caste is a civil status. Or even if it if it is religious, it's less religious once, once you convert out of Hinduism, mm-hmm. right? So anybody who was non-Hindu, for example, maybe Jains or Sikhs or whoever, it was very obvious to, you know, let's say, people, people who were doing the census surveys in places like Punjab and so on, that you know, the, the, there is something like caste here, definitely. Mm-hmm. But if you look at the missionary accounts, they used to look, look upon these manifestations of caste as they saw them as less serious mm. than the if you like number one number one manifestation class which is the hindu one right because that's the most idolatrous with the others there is there is a sense you know it seems to exist more as a social status and it's almost like a civic status rather than a religious status but with the hindus it was very clear <laughs> that this is a religious status right right and Now, nobody knows about, I mean, nobody talks about this thinking today, like it's 200 years old, nobody's that concerned, nobody even really is conscious of it. It's not even there in many of the major studies on on caste, right? The the big studies on caste uh, that the historians have done and so on. It's not there. But once you go into the missionary records, you see that it's there, right? And so something like that is happening here as well, right? Because I, uh, you know, I mean, we can talk about Muslims in India or in South Asia. So, you know, oh, don't they have some something like caste? You know, uh, don't the Sikhs have something like caste? Although they deny it, you know, they, the mm-hmm. Sikhs always say, oh, you know, our doctrines—they don't accept caste. Like you saw the in this, uh, you know, the Swaminar in Mandir. Yeah. You know, they interview, they happen to interview somebody from Guru next door, right? That's they've right. That, yeah, you know, we we don't we don't do all this caste discrimination stuff. You know, it's those those guys. You know, exactly. that we don't do that. Right? So <laughs> this is the kind of the pride of the Sikhs that you know they've they've left caste discrimination behind. But see, I, I'm sure it will be possible to to stitch all these accounts together and actually show that there is something. You know, this deep deep background is still working its way through. And that's why even today, despite the fact that many people would say, yeah, you know, caste is a general South Asian thing, but it's the Hindus that you've got to watch out for.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: Right? So this kind of, maybe you can say there are different levels of presumption, right? But certainly Hindus are at the top level of presumption. Right? right? They're the most guilty. Before you even start your litigation, they're the most guilty because they're presumptively guilty. Right? Right. So the the law is, if you put this into law, it's introducing these kinds of problems. And it's all done on the basis of some kind of european construction of india.
0: Yeah. No that's exactly right. And the other thing um and before i shift to my last question for you uh, the other observation is that and i'm not an expert on indian law either. I'm not an expert on american law. <laughs> I've said i'm not an expert on british law either. So, you know, but what i understand about indian law is that at least when it comes to atrocity laws and things like that. There's a presumed perpetrator and a presumed victim. That would not be the case if caste were added as a category in the United States. And I'm going to assume the same in the UK. So a lot of these activists who are pushing for this, I oftentimes wonder, do they know that they're they're loading up a gun and they're going to actually point it to not just us, but they're included in that quote unquote us. So, um, you know, this is, I think the result of not enough lawyers, perhaps (laughs) amongst those activist circles who are, um, thinking through what the real world implications of this are going to be because the average employer, uh, whether they're South Asian or not, are not going to know what caste someone carries with them. Um, if they're South Asian and someone is applying for a job, they're just going to see them as this person's of South Asian origin. And so I'm going to have to now be extra careful and maybe monitor them and police them for this extra thing that they all do. So, uh, you know, I, I just think that there needs to be more of a, a thoughtful approach to any of this uh, from from all parties involved. Uh, yeah,
1: absolutely. I mean, one of the things I found remarkable about the the tech firms, right? Uh, mm-hmm. It's pretty much the kind of reaction you have in the government here, right? They, they yeah. All say, oh yeah. Of course, we're not we're not in favor of cost discrimination, right. uh, but we think we defend ourselves on the basis that there's no specific legislative provision on cost, mm-hmm. right? And and you know, uh, maybe factually speaking, in a case like Cisco, uh, you know, we, we've established that there was actually no cost discrimination so we don't know what what this lawsuit is about see if I if I was uh you know one of the head honchos of these uh, tech firms I would actually take the bull by the horns and say look this our employees are being singled out here and particularly our Indian employees are being singled out and exposed to Uh, malicious allegations of caste discrimination, Mm
2: -hmm.
1: right? Which are based on no more than some kind of, you know, presumptions and stereotypes that were introduced sometime back in the past. Uh, But they're working their way into the workplace and creating bitterness and conflict, right? And that conflict isn't going to be more exacerbated. You know, once you go into the courts and so on, we already know about what's happening in some universities in in the United States as well. Mm -hmm. So this conflict is spreading, Right. And the anti-cast activists are actually engineering that conflict, right? Maybe right. They're, they're reckless in a way, right? They don't care. Maybe they like conflict. Maybe they thrive on conflict. Maybe they even benefit from conflict because maybe there are benefactors there, mm-hmm. right, which are supporting this conflict from somewhere. Uh, but mm-hmm. if I wasn't, you know, one of the head guys of these, these tech firms, then maybe they should all come together and say, look, we rely a lot on Indian workers, right? We're not going to have them stereotyped, right, as caste discriminators mm-hmm. on any grounds. Right. Uh, and we don't accept that there's a reality behind these kinds of accusations. Right. So, so you, but you guys better stop what you're doing. Right. If you don't, we're going to pull out of California. Mm-hmm. Right. That's it. Or we simply stru- st- stop recruiting Indians and we still go out of business. Right. It's more or less the same thing. Right. And the Californian economy is going to go, is going to crash. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. So they, they should really, you know, have some, have some cojones as you would say, right. In California. Right and, and and do the right thing, right and and don't don't accede to these kind of uh, empty threats. I mean, they are not empty in the sense that they could have ramif ram- worse ramifications that they, than right. they already have. Um, but they they should nip the thing in the bud, right, before it gets worse. Because right. once they concede, this is good. This will get worse and worse. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, unfortunately, we're in a in a time where corporations are not necessarily showing courage. Uh, You can have people who are fired because other coworkers put together a petition based on something like we said, at the top of the hour, something that you said 10 years ago, five years ago, whatever, and may not stand by that, or maybe you do. Uh, But that's, that's kind of the environment that we're in. So my last question, I want to look a little bit in terms of the path forward. And that is that, you know, Indian society, whether we're in a diaspora, or whether we're in India, just like any other society is not perfect. So is there a way to simultaneously protect our community from activists or even you know, possibly church driven policies that are built upon these colonial racist constructs about Indians and Indian society and at the same time address Any internal prejudices or practices, regardless of what the basis is, um, whether it's language or some other sort of background, community, whatever it is, that any practices that deny the wholeness um, of, of an individual or mutual respect of others. How can we hold both of those things? Because I think what I find at least in my own experience with community members is that when you feel that there's so much external pressure, that opportunity to look inwards and take care of the wholeness of of what's inside is, is very difficult.
1: Mm. I mean, those are very, very big questions. Um, I mean, one of the things I would say is that, uh, or I would question whether or not let me let me put it in quite broad terms because maybe that's commensurate to the question. You see, currently what's happening in the West, in Western countries like Britain, California, and so on, right, is that there is a concerted effort being made to teach Indians about morality, mm-hmm. right? Uh, that we are supposed to be taught how to live with each other as Indians and how to get along with each other and so on, right? I think their starting point is wrong because it's not Indian culture which has had problems of coexistence and plural coexistence within its, its kind of structural, you know, as its as structural basis. It's Western societies which have had this.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And so the West, in a way, needs to look at itself, right, and figure out why is it that this problem of intolerance is a constantly recurring one. And what, is, what are the lessons that they can learn from India
2: mm-hmm. about
1: how plural societies can function together? Right. right? Of course, actually, Indians have to rediscover those as well, right? Because mm-hmm. you have these Western-inspired in- anti-caste activists operating everywhere in India as well. They're, they're, they've they infiltrated academia completely, mm-hmm. right? They're part of the political system. They're, they're everywhere. All the institutions are dominated by them, right? Yeah. And so those are the kind of people who also actually at some level believe that it's the West which teach has to teach us these lessons. Mm-hmm. Right? They're also deeply in their colonial consciousness in a way right? Uh, they think that they can't be moral without the West, hmm. right? Um, so something somewhere has gone, gone wrong. Obviously the experience of colonization is, is a big part of the, the problem here, right? Uh, but it's not just colonization because it's happening today, like in Britain, the kind of stuff that I've been discussing, or, or you're describing about California, right? There's a kind of continued effort to act as though it's Indians who need to learn these lessons of coexistence. Mm-hmm. Right, and that's that's a wrong point of departure, in my view. Those people who argue like that, particularly those who from from the West, right, or the, let's say people who defer to the West in terms of their moral framework or orientation, uh, I, I think they need to re-examine the whole whole situation, right, and rediscover how it is that Indians have have produced uh, ways of living together which are, in a way, far deeper and far. More elaborate than what, what the, the the West has ever managed to have to 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 work out for itself, right? Yes. Uh, so that's what I would say to that. <laughs> I
0: I think that's good. You know, we need to rediscover our roots essentially because there's there's much to be learned, and and in some sense, you know, outside of all of the activism outside of kind of the latent uh, biases that we see in the academic study, I think on a people to people level, so many have turned to Indian wisdom and Indian spirituality um, to find those kind of profound ways of throwing aside all these boundaries, all these divisions, all these differences to find kind of that wholeness in society. So it's there. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I think it's just a matter of kind of aligning um, those trends because we've we've seen See, that happening. I,
1: I, 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 sorry to interrupt that at an intuitive level, of course you you know because you this is your lived experience. Yes right or, or this is your this is part of your experience right I, I shouldn't use this this rather odd term of lived experience but this is part of your experience right so you know it at some level at some intuitive level or whatever i think now let me point the you know the, the point the finger back back to myself and my fellow academics where we're failing is that we're also buying into this agenda right we we also want to say that it's Indians who need to learn moral lessons, right? That's what the academics are saying, right? The kind of academics who supported supporting the litigation in California, for example, right? They're all saying that. Mm-hmm. The same thing was happening with this. Actually, there's an overlapping group of academics who were saying the same thing in Britain. Right.
0: Yeah. I think that one of them testified at the Santa Clara yeah. County um,
1: oh, really? Human um, Rights yeah. Commission.
0: Yeah, one of yeah. them did.
1: <laughs> so, 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 that, so that's the situation we're in, right? So they're not looking at the situation. They're, they're looking at it in a topsy-turvy way, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, And so this is where the academic community is completely failed, in my view, right? Because we're not thinking about how is it that Indians have developed these traditions of coexistence, right? Without widespread conflict at any point in the history, right? I mean, I'm not saying there's no conflict. Obviously, there's, you know, there's war and all kinds of other things, right? But this kind of identity-driven conflict, right, which they presuppose existed in India forever, is not part of our experience. In, in fact, of experiences, some some very, very different. I mean, you have to only examine how Indians are getting along with in every part of the world, wherever they are settled, they're not introducing or reintroducing conflict. And they, they, they try to keep the peace wherever they are. Well, that's it for this episode of That's So Hindu. If you enjoyed it, please take a minute and leave us a nice five-star review. It's how you can help the show get discovered by more listeners. You can help ensure that more of these get made by making a donation to HAF at www.hinduamerican.org slash donate. And before you go, a quick message. The Hindu American Foundation proudly supports We Can Do This, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services nationwide COVID-19 and vaccine education campaign. Our community has been hit hard by COVID-19, and many of us need help in getting educated about how we can get vaccinated. Our organization is working hard to ensure our community has access to important information in our fight against COVID. Learn about COVID-19 vaccinations and get help scheduling your vaccination at vaccines.gov. We can do this.